podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Jones! Bowden! He's got it! England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins! Stokes flashes it away through the covers for four and England have won the match! Here we are at the Oval on the fourth day of this final test match and the Australians are forming a small guard of honour here for Stuart Broad and Jimmy Anderson. Uh, They're just uh, making their way down the steps now and it's an impressive performance by Australia. Here come Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad, 1,291 test wickets between them. This is potentially Stuart Broad's last day of Test cricket. You can see how well received and how popular he is. He's making his way down now, down the steps at the Oval, and through the line of Australian fielders, walking out with his great mate, Jimmy Anderson, Stuart Broad with no helmet on, walks his way through on his own, Anderson politely letting him go first, and what a reception for the amazing Stuart Broad, 602 test wickets. He salutes the Australians and heads out to the middle. Will it be his last day of test cricket? Well, we'll see. Well, I'm back at home now because that was actually the highlight of the day uh, with the lovely parade of the Australian players allowing Stuart Broad onto the field and Jimmy Anderson after him. Of course, it was Jimmy Anderson's birthday today as well. Uh, but he sportingly allowed Broad his moments of, of glory there to walk ahead. And then Anderson followed behind and the Aussies, uh, you know, sort of clapped them onto the field. It was a lovely moment. Stuart Broad then managed to hit a six. Uh, his last shot in Test cricket, a six over deep mid-wicket. He'd been seeking that for most of the over. He'd been facing against Mitchell Stark and then he managed to wallop it over the mid-wicket for six, which caused the biggest cheer of the day. And really, after that, uh, there's nothing but misery for England fans with Australia progressing uninterrupted, unhindered to 135 for no wicket. And it was an impressive performance by the Australians, which we'll recap. And we'll also hear from Stuart Brawl. We didn't have time to really uh, reflect on his amazing career yesterday's podcast. So we'll do that today with, with some thoughts about his career and also some comments of his own about some of his great spells. Uh, Simon, what did you make of it all today? Well, it was about sort of, 10 minutes of high excitement for England fans. And then it was pretty miserable, wasn't it? It was a bad day on and off the field for England we had the high of Stuart Broad coming onto the field and the crowd cheering and then then him hitting that six and then after that just about nothing and I mean Australia have got a really good chance of winning this match I I was looking at the betting exchanges they're actually on one of them they're actually favourites to win and they still got a lot to do to get up to 384 
uh, to win this test match. But Kawaja and Warner looked untroubled. They really did. They, I mean, England did not look like getting a wicket in the 38 overs that were possible before the rain came at 2.40. So Australia have got a, a great chance of, of ruining Stuart Broad's final test match. You know, it could be, well, it will be final test matches for Kawaja and Warner in England, final Ashes test matches for them. But they've got a great chance to go out on a high and win the series. Still a lot to do, but we're in for an intriguing final day to the series. And the wicket just looked, the pitch just looked dead, dead <laughs> flat. I was sat actually today with my, my kids, uh, my partner, uh, just trying to, <clears throat> I thought I planned this very carefully actually and bought tickets for the fourth day of the final test thinking it would be the decisive day, especially the way England played. And it, it was all set up beautifully and then the rain ruined it. Uh, but in that time we were there and, you know, my sons in particular, really excited to see Mark Wood and, and Jimmy and, and Brody probably bowling together for the last time. Well, definitely bowling together for the last time, but uh, possibly Jimmy bowling for the last time in England as well. Who knows? Uh, but anyway, it was just uh, disappointing to see they had no impact at all. Uh, impressive batting by the Australians. I was a bit surprised that Mark Wood didn't bowl earlier. He didn't come on until 30-odd overs had been bowled. And it, I... I was watching to see if he was injured on the boundary. He was fielding near us, actually, and he didn't seem to be encumbered by any problems. So I don't quite understand why he wasn't given a go earlier because the ball was really quite soft by then. The batsmen were well set. He did clang a bouncer onto Kawaja's head almost immediately. But then soon after that, the rain came and... It was um well it was a it was a real washout both for the the fans and for England as well, and and also we can go back to England's batting last night. I mean Australia in with a chance of winning now. They need two hundred and forty nine more to win. England lost their last five wickets for thirty five when they were in a position of total comfort. And I we we talked about this last night, and I thought at the time it just looked as though they were frittering away. You know an impregnable position. You know to get something like four twenty on and, and say to Australia, okay, if you really want to create something special, you know chase those. But I suppose that they might have looked at the weather forecast and said, look, we need to you know we need to play some shots, get out there and and start bowling. The only thing about that I would I would say though is that they did bat on this morning. You know if they knew what the weather forecast was today, they still decided to bat on. So they clearly didn't think they had enough runs, which indicates they weren't that happy with the way things had gone last night. And I just thought they were so careless on the third day. And I and there's one thing I've, I, I think about this England team from time to time. I think, you know, they do so much that's, that's very good, so much to admire. But every now and again, they don't seem to sense danger. And I, I felt that last night because you could see it happening. And Australia were just sort of sitting back, waiting for the wickets to fall, waiting for England to fritter them away. And then, oh, and lo and behold, with one day left, 249 to win, 10 wickets in hand, 98 overs to be bowled on the final day of the match. And we, we'll probably get them all in as well if we need them or, or you know, enough play to get a result. There's that's a bit of rain around tomorrow. I've had a look at the forecast, you know, some showers in the afternoon, but we can, you know, we can make up time. So you, you'd think there's enough time uh, to get a positive result. And actually just looking at the odds that I mentioned, Australia, a bit odds on. Uh, England are... 2.7 to 1 to win and, and the draw is almost 5 to 1 so that just shows you, you know, how people are thinking about this that 
you know, it's not going to be a draw because the weather's you know good enough and there's enough play available to the players on the final day. And the pitch looks pretty flat. There was very mm. little in it for any of the England bowlers. There was no sideways movement. There was no uneven bounce, lift or anything, which uh, had occurred earlier in the game. And certainly even yet on the third day, one or two balls from the Australian faster bowlers were uh, lifting off a length. But uh, there was absolutely nothing for the England bowlers. They tried really hard, but I think actually Chris Wokes probably looked the most dangerous. Uh, Anderson came charging in as usual. Abroad started it all off and it was brilliant actually to be there to see his uh, opening over. Of course, he started now opening the bowling, bowling the first over. That sort of happened really uh, increasingly in this series instead of Jimmy bowling the first over. And I noticed quite a lot of people wearing the bandanas in the crowd today in celebration of Broad. And uh, they really roared him to the wicket uh, a few times in that first over. But Warner and Kawaja looked secure. And after a while, the crowd went back to chatting amongst themselves and hoping that something would happen, which which it never did. Hmm. I just wonder whether the Stuart Broad retiring was just a bit of a distraction. You know, it sort of got in the way for England today. I don't know. It's, it's easy to speculate about that. One thing I did notice, uh, Yoss, just a, a small detail was that Jimmy Anderson reverse swept the ball out to the boundary in that over, the second over of the day, the over in which he was out, and they didn't take the single. I thought that was a bit odd because it was quite, it was early in the over. You think, well, get Stuart Broad on strike. He might better lar up a couple of sixes, get England's lead up to 400. It, perhaps Jimmy said, right, I'm not going down that other end. You know, I was hit on the bicep last night. I'm not going to risk getting injured. That was, the, that, that was my conclusion uh, from that, but I thought there was enough of the over left for Stuart Broad to you know to take on Todd Murphy and you know get up the get up the other end for the next over as well. So I, th- I thought that was really odd. I didn't I didn't fully understand that uh, you know turning down a single uh, early in the over. I mean, just a small detail, but one of those odd, odd things. You know, if it if it comes down to something very tight, as indeed the Edgbaston Test match did, you know just one or two incidents, you might be grateful for the extra uh, run here and there. Of course, uh, the big screen, as soon as the rain started falling, was showing a lot of Broad's highlights uh, over his career. Uh, there have been many, haven't there? Quite a few of them at the Oval. And uh, it, was, it was interesting to watch, watch those through. Uh, he hasn't changed much, actually, has he, over, over his career? His bowling action is still pretty similar. Uh, he does more with his hands and his wrists now, but his basic bowling action, I think, is, is similar. And there's just so much skill and expertise and and passion in all those highlights reels that you can see those thrusting uh, you know knees charging to the wicket and the 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 the, the, the insistent bowling uh, deliveries nothing actually that spectacular often but just enough movement to take wickets and their celebrations obviously are really impressive what what do you pick out of uh, you know the moments that that you've seen and, and, and remember? Well, I, I, one thing I do remember is right back at the start of Stuart Broad's career, before he was selected to play for England, I'd heard a whisper that, that there's this guy, Stuart Broad, you know, playing for Leicestershire, and he's a talented young bowler. And I remember being at a championship match at the Oval and watching him bowl against Surrey. And I watched him bowl, you know, three or four, five overs, whatever. And I thought, yeah, this guy, this guy looks as though he's got something. You know, when you see it in a young bowler, you think it's worth keeping an eye on him. And well, uh, it's it's more than worth keeping an eye on him. I, I think you know, obvi- obviously, the the Trent Bridge spell. Uh, I wasn't there that day actually when he took his his eight for fifteen at Trent Bridge, but I was in Johannesburg 
when he took six for 17 against South Africa in 2016 and bowled them out for 83. That was a very tight test match, that one. And he just, you know, he had he got on one of those runs, you know, that he, he it happened so often, it seemed, in his career. You know, he just got going. Six for 50 against Australia at Chester Street in 2013, 11 wickets in the match. That was the game which sealed the series for England, put them 3-0 up in the series. Again, it was quite a tight a test match. Even Old Trafford in, in 2020 during COVID when he was, remember he was left out of the first test match and it just seemed, it enraged him that he was left out. And you thought, well he saw coming to the end, you know, England are going to mix and match a bit you know, rotate a bit. And it enraged him and then he just, he just sort of stormed through the rest of that summer. He took uh, 10 wickets in that uh, match 6 for 31 and 4 for 36. So those, those are some of the spells that I remember. You know, I, you know, I was there and I was there that day as well at the Oval in 2009 when he went through Australia on the Friday afternoon I was just there as a spectator that day watching from side on he just got he just had a way of of get getting going in spells mm. didn't he and I also also I think as well not just on the field but is is off the field uh, presence as well he was so competitive on the field but off the field you know just to media interactions you know he he, a lot of players are quite cautious in what they say to the media and probably they're probably right to, to be so as well but Stuart he would always say something he would say something interesting good talker you can see why he's going to go into the media into the sky box uh, but he would, you know, he would give you something he would say something interesting make you think or or just rile the opposition or, and, and you know he, he's done that recently hasn't he by saying it was a void series uh, the last time in Australia you know, that, that was sort of typical Stuart and also you know the confidence of having got all those wickets behind you and, and knowing you're coming to the end as well yeah I think actually his interviews show why he's such a good bowler because there's so much going on in his mind, in his head, around taking wickets and he can sort of explain what he was thinking. And, you know, there's lots of sort of little tiny nuances that he notices in batsmen, little things that he's worked on for, for his bowling. And as, as you rightly say, he senses the moment and can lift himself for those crucial spells that, that are match-winning spells. Alistair Cook, I thought, made an interesting point, actually, when he was thinking back to, to Stuart Broad's career, saying that if you watched him play in a county match or even faced him in a county match, you'd never imagine this is a guy who's taken 600 test wickets. Yeah. It's not because he's he's bowling badly in county cricket, but he just hasn't got that intensity uh, and, and desire and passion that comes out in key moments in key duels and key passages of play in test cricket particularly in the ashes I first remember seeing that like you said 2009 at the Oval a crucial test match which he sealed actually with quite a lot of um, bowling off cutters in the first innings to bowl Australia out with some quite imaginative use of the seam and, and, and cutters and then uh, manipulating the field well to confuse a batsman in the 2013 crucial spell at Chester Street when just before tea, or around about the tea interval, Michael Clark was looking uh, was was looking quite quite solid, and he moved a fielder when he came on for a, a new spell. One of the first things he did was he made a quite a big thing of moving a a fielder from the offside to leg gully, as if to say, right, I'm going to look to bowl in at your pads. I'm going to try and get you caught leg gully, and then produce an absolute beautiful leg cutter which took out his off stump and moved the other way so he sort of confused the batsman there with a, a little bit of manipulation of the field and then was off and running and, and took several more wickets and, and England won that test match so you know I love the way he can manipulated his bowling and the field to confuse batsmen and take wickets and get his whole kind of energy going to produce those great spells. Mm. I also enjoyed his batting from time to time when, when he could get over the first 12 balls 
15 balls, he could be quite devastating, couldn't he? And he hit it in all sorts of unusual positions. He was a very clean a striker of the ball. I was there at Old Trafford that day. He was hit on the helmet as well, which seemed to take his batting back a bit for a while. And that was, you know, that was a nasty blow. But yeah, he could be an exciting player. And of course, made a, a test 100. Just talking about his sort of chat off the field, I was just watching a clip this afternoon of, you know, during after Sandpaper Gate, when that came out, Australia were, were using sandpaper in that series in South Africa. There was a, England were in New Zealand at the time, and he gave a press conference in which he said, Why is it it's so strange? You know, it's so strange. Australia are, why have they changed their methods? When they played us in the Ashes uh, last time, which is only a few months before, they were getting the ball to move and swing and reverse swing, doing all sorts of things. And now they've gone away from that they've changed their methods they've they've scratched the ball uh, you know the implication being of course they hadn't changed their methods you know it was going on before it was such he actually thought about how he was going to say it and he, i mean you know it is it is that was typical stuart broad sort of in a way just getting people to think and also sort of riling the opposition and then uh, you know in a way perhaps one thing we remember him for as well was the you know the incident at Trent Bridge in in 2013 where he was supposed to have nicked it to slip and <laughs> didn't walk and he got he got away with it of course he did nick it to slip I mean it's, it's bizarre that people say that he nicked it to the keeper and the gloves of the keeper took it uh, to slip so I, I've always thought that was strange and you know, Australia really complaining about that you know all those fans complaining about it and then you know how many Australian batsman do you see walking I always thought that was a really odd thing I suppose it was just born of frustration in the same way that England supporters got very frustrated uh, last week about the fact that the the old Trafford test match was was washed out so England today really was having their worst day since well last Sunday (laughs) when you know the rain ruining last Sunday and and ruining today as well although you know I thought it got to the stage where England looked as if they they were you know they might be quite happy to get off the field I know they've got to take 20 10 wickets uh, in this innings to win the game and deny Australia a series victory. But if they felt flat. You almost felt, yeah, it's not working for us today. Uh, let's come back uh, tomorrow. But England got a, a lot of work uh, to do. Uh, what Just on uh, Stuart Broad, uh, what, does, what does Jimmy do? Does, does Jimmy just go on playing? It's, it's weird, isn't it? I think a lot of people are expecting, oh, this is going to be Jimmy Anderson's last uh, test match. And actually, Stuart Broad's last test match, you know, he, he sort of, not exactly wrong-footed us, because I think it's been coming for a while, hasn't it, with, with Stuart? I think, you know, it's, it's been there and bubbling in the background. You know he's got this opportunity to go and work for Sky. I wonder what, I wonder what Jimmy does now. Well, Just well, keeps I think, going? I think he probably will, you know. I, I, I suppose I, I, the, the difference between them is, is quite stark, isn't it? The difference between them. Stuart Broad, for me, is a showman who likes the big stage and, you know, the, 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 the big series. Jimmy Anderson is a tradesman who just loves bowling and he doesn't care what situation he's in. I mean, you watched him bowling in the uh, Essex-Lancashire County Championship match this year, tormenting Alistair Cook from round the wicket. I think he got him out in both innings and and just loves the art of bowling. And I've been watching him bowl in this test match, actually. And uh, as I've said several times, I probably wouldn't have picked him for this test, but he's bowled really well. He's bowled with energy and... In invention and, and and he looks penetrative. He's been unlucky. He's gone past. Yeah, not the much edge. luck there, yours. No, he's had I mean, not had much luck there. He hasn't had he, any really? luck, really. So, uh, if I was him, I mean, he, he certainly doesn't look uh, in any way uh, losing pace or losing spirit. So he, he'll obviously feel a bit bereft without uh, Broad at the other end, a, a striking partner, someone he can exchange so much information with, and 
you know, they've been together for so long now, haven't they? Uh, so it'll obviously be strange, but I suppose I can sort of see him going on, really, because it's, <laughs> it's his life, isn't it? Bowling is his life, whereas for Broad, you can see other things that he wants to do in his life. By the way, one thing we haven't mentioned is his excellence against left-handers over his career. He really has perfected the art of, of bowling round the wicket to left-handers. He's still got the chance of getting a couple more as well with the Kawaja and, and David Warner still at the wicket. And, of course, he's tormented Warner uh, over the last two or three ashes, 17 times he's dismissed him. In fact, just looking at his stats here, uh, 411 dismissals of right-handers and 191 of left-handers and actually slightly lower average against left-handers than right-handers, but uh, not much in it, actually. But he's certainly been brilliant at bowling to left-handers and kind of almost changed the game in the way that he's explored that. This podcast, of course, is uh, supported by IG Trading and Investments. And actually, the, the punters today had lots of a, a chance to, to play in the IG NetGains Arena because of the rain. Uh, it was a very active area this afternoon. I was actually trying to get David Gower and Graham Gooch to come and have a go, but it was so busy, actually, it was impossible. But anyway, that fund is, is rising and rising as we speak. And obviously, one more day of opportunity now for people to go into the IG NetGains Arena and explore those brilliant Ashes deliveries before the series is over. And the match, well, you know, 200-odd to win for Australia. 250, is it, to win? 249. Uh, about 249 to win. So, you know, it, it, it to me, odds on they could do it. But what, what, how do you see it? Well, I, I think Australia definitely got a chance, I was saying. And, you know, the, the betting market suggests they, they've got a chance. I, 384 is a lot to win, but we've seen teams do it uh, that sort of score more regularly uh, recently, don't I think? You know, perhaps one day cricket's got something to do with that, and also perhaps pitches don't deteriorate uh, quite as much as they used to. And I'm mean, just on some fourth inning score at the Oval in the 21st century. Um, India in 2018 made 345 in the fourth innings of the match. England 2007 369 for six. Australia in 2009 made 348. They weren't winning scores, but they were last inning scores. It shows, you know, the pitch uh, does last at the Oval. So there is an opportunity uh, for Australia. What, what do you think? What, what, what does your gut tell you? You've, you've seen hundreds of cricket matches and, and loads and loads of test cricket. Uh, can, can Australia win tomorrow? I actually think they can, you know. I thought, you know, going into the fourth day that England would get on top and take early wickets because I thought there was enough in the pitch. But there doesn't seem to be that much in the pitch. And the bowlers just looked a little bit, not tired exactly, but they were getting more and more exasperated and they just weren't looking that dangerous. Uh, Moen looks as if he's struggling with his groin. I'm amazed Joe he's Root. bowling, actually. I was, I'm amazed he yeah, bowled. Well, it is, actually. It, it, it is, in a way, amazing that he bowled at all. Um, Joe Root has uh, tried manfully to fill the breach there, but bowled quite a lot of loose balls, which were put away very well by Kawada in particular, quite cutting the ball on the offside. Uh, the seamers, uh, Chris Wokes, I thought, looked the most threatening, actually, despite Mark Wood clanging Kawada on the head. Um, there is a little bit of a, a wonder about Wood's fitness. I mean, he looked all right, but he wasn't quite at, at top speed. So, you know, all in all, England have got to really raise themselves. And it, it's going to be, in the end, isn't it? It's going to be who wants it the most, who's got the, the, the most left to give. And Australia have done a brilliant job of, of, so far, eating away at the target without losing a wicket. So 
it's two hundred and forty nine to win is is eminently gettable. So mm. I think I'd hate to say this, but I think now Australia are favourites. Mm. Just on the spin, the the two spinners between them, fourteen overs, no maidens. Not for 58. So they couldn't give England any control. There was a bit of threat there. There was a bit of spin, but it's it's slow, isn't it? And Karaja and Warner are able to deal with it. The, you know, the pace bowlers didn't go around the park at all. They were they were quite uh, steady. What about Usman Kawaja? And he's now the leading run scorer in the series, and it w- will uh, yeah he will be the leading run scorer in the series. That's quite a a feat, isn't it? When you think that he only got back in the Australia side during the last Ashes series because of a, a COVID outbreak in the side, and he's I mean he's averaged sixty two uh, since then with a you know with a chance to to press on. He started the series with a hundred yards. He's got the chance to finish the series with a hundred. And we were debating today uh, with my kids who's going to be man of the series. And it's a difficult one to, to decide because before today, mm. Zach Crawley was the leading run maker. But obviously, England hadn't won the series at that point. And, st- and obviously, they can't win the series. Kawaja was just behind him and has now overtaken him. Interestingly, he's batted something like 123 more overs than Zach Crawley for an almost equivalent number of runs, which indicates his... Uh, you know, sort of sedate method, I suppose, compared to the rather more sensational style of of Zach Crawley. But he's been uh, Australia's rock, hasn't he, through most of this series, uh, unflustered, unhurried, gets on with the the game his way. A few more shots today, and it doesn't expend much energy. He looks as if he can bat all day and all night. So I, I guess the Australians will try and play round him, and and if it works then he is going to be man of the series. There's a lot there's a lot to, to play for on that final day. And one of those is who's going to be man of the series. Somebody will get 100, potentially, in the Australia side. And, you know, whether that is Kawaja, whether that's Smith or, or Labuschagne, say, one of those three has the chance to be kingpin of the, of the series, I guess. Mm. Well, we you um, mentioned that Alex Carey has, has really struggled since the the stumping of Johnny Bairstow. I think on our second day uh, podcast, and I said I bet he win. I bet he hits the winning runs uh, on the fifth day. You actually, you you could almost see a scenario where Stuart Broad bowls to Carey and Carey hits the winning runs uh, tomorrow. I don't know. You know that would there would be some. I don't know. There would be something a bit of a frisson about that, wasn't it? You know, Carey that moment at Lords, which you know caused such a an uproar among the, the England supporters. And Stuart Broad is his is last action in Test cricket. England, of course, will be hoping for... Well, t- they've got to say 10 balls, haven't they? 10 good balls or, you know, or, or three or four mistakes and six good balls. And they can get... You know, that, that's the challenge for them. And, of course, Australia to win, what, 249 more. You know, that's sort of... That's 500 balls that they've got to bat for. So, that you know, that's how you've got to look at it. But Australia, well, the pitch looks flat. They've given themselves a chance... There's one day left. The forecast is is decent, and it's up to someone to, I suppose, be a hero tomorrow. Australia trying to win this series for first time in England for 22 years. England trying to uh, deny it uh, to them. What what should we do uh, tonight, yours? Do you think we should leave the last word uh, to Stuart Broad? He had sort of had the first word today, didn't he, by that guard of honour, and then hitting that six, and then it didn't go particularly well. But perhaps we should leave the the last word or words to Stuart Broad tonight. Well, he's got the chance to be a hero again, of course. Can he summon up one more amazing spell? He's already England's leading wicket-taker in the Ashes, having overtaken Ian Botham a couple of tests ago. 
so can he just surge those that body and get those knees pumping one more time to break through and, and knock the, the, the stuffing out of Australia? Well, we'll see tomorrow. Yeah, in the meantime, let's hear uh, what his greatest moment was, some thoughts from him, memories of Trent Bridge in 2015, when, interestingly, two things. One is he wasn't convinced that England should field first. And two, he was quite nervous because it was the first time that he'd played in a match without Jimmy Anderson and had to open the bowling and bowl the first ball. It was the first time I'd ever bowled the first ball in a test match. So it was very much that building up towards that. And Trevor Bayliss, as coach, had, had been talking going into the game of how important the first hour is, whether you're opening the batting or opening the bowling, it's your responsibility to set the tone for the week uh, by making sure that you're right on the money in that first hour. So there was, it did feel like there was that sort of added pressure and added responsibility. Um, never in my wildest dreams, I think it would go as quite as well as that. And actually had quite a nervy start, actually. I, I remember it being a bit slippy underfoot and, uh, I was really close to the no ball line. I was just slipping a little bit. Um, I bowled sort of four leg buys, got Rogers out, bowled a half volley to Smith and it was, a, and then got him out. So it was an action pack first over 10 for two, I think it was after six balls. So there was, uh, there was all sorts going on. Um, but definitely getting that early wicket settled my settled, settled me. Um, and just sort of rode off the emotions that Trent bridge often, often offers. And, uh, you know, it's always a shame for me when I don't see Test match cricket being played there in the in an English summer because it's uh, for the men's team because uh, it, it brings it brings great cricket that ground and and for me personally I just love turning up and playing there but uh, yeah it was um, that was definitely a once in a career day and uh, something that that I will always hold very special memories of because retaining the Ashes for the first time at Trent Bridge. Uh, where I was living, you know, 10 minutes from the ground and grew up there since I was two or three years old. It's sort of stuff you um, you couldn't write about as a kid. You didn't even want a bowl first, did you, that day? You wanted it. You no, wanted I, it do you know what? Uh, that's 100% true. And actually, I said to Cookie, because um, it was uh, it was obviously a bit, bit wet, a bit of grass on the pitch. And I said to Cookie, you know, at Trent Bridge, I played here a lot. It will be slow first day. You get the play and misses, it will speed up and you get the nicks. And actually the I think the the stats have suggested like I think one out of fifteen tests have been won by the team bowling first because it sort of sticks in the pitch, speeds up, and then it's nickable. And uh I was hundred percent bat. I was like, honestly, this is this is a bat first. And then I was marking my run up out and Warney walked past me, who was the biggest bat first person ever, wasn't he? Being a spinner. And he uh he looked at me and go, This is a bowl first, isn't it? And I went, oh, if he's thinking that, then I might be wrong. And uh, I said to Cookie, I walked up to him, I was like, look, you know, go with your gut here. But if you bowl, I'll be on the money. And um, and uh, he won the toss and bowl and the rest is history, really. Podcast Network.